Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for, and sometimes won, their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a a new series and a part of Avi's Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. Today's episode topic. They used to run the country, and they thought they owned it. Believing themselves fit to rule by right, education, virtue, and upbringing, they arose in a time of rapid demographic, economic, and social change to tame and lead the unruly emerging nation known as Americans. They came to be known as the WASPs, the WASPs, or white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, seen as great and virtuous patricians by some, as self-righteous, hypocritical busybodies by others, they left a mark on American culture, government, and the elite American ethos, which lasts until today. With me today to understand the rise, contribution, controversy, and fall of this now almost extinct breed of American is Professor Samuel Goldman of George Washington University. Sam, welcome. Thank you for having me, Avi. So let me start by trying to uh, tease out the definitional question, because at least until quite recently, WASP, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, certainly if we were to remove the Anglo-Saxon, the white Protestants were the overwhelming majority of the country. And so, and yet... When people use the term, it seems like it's kind of fungible. Does refer to the white Protestants who preferred rural, small-town life, especially New England? Did it mean the uh, elites and fathers of the cities? Did it mean the entire population or specific groups of them? Uh, and when did they come to be known as wasps? During the period or afterward? Yeah, so this is a strange term, um, partly because, as you point out, it's really not altogether accurate. So the acronym, of course, stands for White Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but as used, it has a much narrower um, referent. Uh, it's, it's been typically employed as, as a description of members of what used to be called um, the Eastern Establishment. So these were relatively affluent, uh, well-educated Americans, concentrated, although not limited, to uh, the East Coast and often with roots in New England, um, uh, who formed for roughly the 75 years after the Civil War something like a national 
ruling class. Um, and it's important to specify because, as you say, um, a majority of the country were white Protestants, and really until probably the early 20th century, uh, white Protestants of British descent, but they were not wasps in this more narrow sense. They weren't um, members of this New England-based patrician class. Um, and as far as that group goes, the term wasp was popularized only when their economic, political, and cultural authority um, was swiftly declining um, after World War II. Um, the, the term was brought to public attention um, by the sociologist uh, Digby Baltzell uh, in his book, The Protestant establishment, um, although he didn't invent the term. And he was really sort of self-consciously writing an elegy for the wasps, which was a group to which he belonged by ancestry, um, but which he believed had already, um, in the 1950s, reached the end of its useful life. Fascinating. Um... So now that we've set down the terms, and we're talking about an elite group from within the white Protestant majority uh, and concentrated in the East, uh, I'd like to, let's start with the starting point. Why is it that it is after the Civil War that these people become so incredibly prominent? After all, uh, the Northeast, uh, even uh, since independence, has been a place of the concentration of wealth and the concentration of education and the concentration of a kind of uh, New England approach to life that focused on uh, development and the building up of virtue. Uh, it didn't suddenly emerge ex nihilo uh, right after the war, and yet it seems like they were the big winners. And how and why was that? And how did they try to use that power? Well, I think it's important to see the wasps um, rather than a sort of spontaneously occurring formation um, as a kind of elite project of national development, um, which was a response to the Civil War. Um, so the Civil War raised these profound questions. Um, who were Americans? What did it mean to be American? Who should lead the American people? And many of those who would become wasps or would generate the, the wasp project had an answer. And the answer was that the early republic had lacked a self-aware, dedicated ruling class that was willing to uh, subordinate its own regional and economic interests to the good of the whole. And since the Civil War had happened, and they couldn't go back in time and provide one, the idea was that in the future, national unity could be sustained by the creation of a national ruling class, um, usually in analogy with, uh, with Britain. Um, so in the 1870s and 1880s, there is an extraordinary renaissance of institution building, um, including uh, churches, um, schools, um, what we would today call um, activist or, or uh, political associations, all directed 
toward consolidating uh, the national interest and consolidating authority in the hands of those who would be worthy of it. And although uh, there were clear ethnic and religious presuppositions involved, uh, again, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, the idea is that the natural ruling class um, are those who are descended from the pre-revolutionary elite, uh, again, um, often with more or less attenuated associations to, um, uh, to New England, but it wasn't in conception um, an exclusive project. Rather, these were people um, who saw themselves as really public, public servants devoting themselves to the leadership um, of a nation that without them uh, might collapse again into blood and chaos. Fair point. Um, so, if I may, uh, they, the WASPs, despite their great efforts in institution building and education and culture, uh, were not the only rising elites in this period. Uh, among other things, you had the rise of other social groups to prominence, power, and influence. Uh, not just the great robber barons and magnates and businessmen, uh, but also the rise of uh, the American industrial working class, uh, who I imagine appreciated some of what uh, the idea of wasps, what, what wasps would do, and on the other hand, uh, were not, because after all, um, the wasps uh, were not really quite meritocrats. Uh, you could get, you could easily get in until the late 1960s. And maybe even today, uh, if you had uh, if you had a particular last name, even if there were people who came from poor backgrounds who actually objectively did better than you at a scholarly level. And I imagine, for instance, when reading about Reconstruction, I noted that setting aside the fact that, yes, a lot of the a lot of the resistance, uh, maybe even most of the resistance uh, among Southerners, uh, to Reconstruction was about racism and wanting to keep black men down. But there was also uh, a very clear concept of resentment of what we have our own elites, we have our own ways of doing things, and I honestly wonder if the same was true in the West. Um, so how exactly uh, did the WASPs deal with the natural resistance to all or part of their program, uh, either nationally or in different regions? Well, uh, as, as you would expect, this claim to national leadership um, was not universally accepted and, and really, I think, not even necessarily accepted by a majority. So in describing this WASP enterprise or the, the attempt to establish um, a coherent, stable governing class, we have to consider um, the other powers that were vying for influence. Um, and here again, I think it's really important to look back a little bit to the Civil War, um, which had, among other things, um, pitted northern um, industrial elites against a southern uh, agrarian elite. And that's simplified, and many of your listeners will point out all the ways in which uh, that description should be uh, qualified, and they're probably right. But even so, I think uh, that's, that's 
enough to say um, in a sentence. And the Southern planter elite was effectively wiped out um, by the war. Um, they had dominated uh, American politics since the founding. Um, uh, famously, um, the, uh, the first uh, five presidents belonged to the Virginia planter class, or, or excuse me, first uh, four of the first five, excluding John Adams. Uh, and the so-called slave power was, if not the dominant influence, then among the greatest influences on America. American politics up to the Civil War, but that that all came to um, an end. Um, of course, um, the uh, slave power was deprived of its its slaves, and thus the basis of its wealth. But also um, the expansion of an industrial economy uh, reduced the relative um, value of ag agricultural labor. Um, and this is also part of a broader agricultural depression throughout the world in, in the late 19th century. So the old Southern elite is no longer a contender uh, for national power. So who does that leave? Well, on the one hand, um, there is the new industrial elite, including people who made a lot of money um, during the war. Um, and even though uh, many of the people who meet this description are wasps in, in some technical sense. Um, I'm, I'm thinking um, of figures like the great banker J.P. Morgan, who was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, they were not members of the New England-based patrician class with colonial roots and a history of, of public service. What they did have was an enormous amount of money, which they used uh, quite quite happily um, to influence the political process. And this is the, the famous corruption of the Gilded Age. The wasps opposed themselves to what they saw uh, as a corrupt and corrupting plutocracy uh, deriving from the new industrial fortunes of the 19th century. Um, and one reason that I think some of the, the political and cultural struggles of the period can seem so alien to us is because they are within a broader white Protestant elite, but between these two groups, uh, one relying on new money um, and um, industrial, uh, industrial technology, the other more professionalized and often somewhat poorer, though very rarely poor in any uh, absolute sense, and relying on cultural, um, uh, intellectual, and institutional influence. So that's, that's one, one rivalry. On the other hand, though, um, there is a rivalry uh, between the wasps or those who would become um, the wasps and the new industrial working class, which included um, many immigrants. And one of the, the deep fears of the wasp class, and one of the things that still gives them part of their, their bad reputation today, um, is their concern, and in some cases almost obsession, that America was being subverted by immigration of undesirable people from undesirable parts uh, of 
uh, of the world. So, facing that, um, you mentioned that they were part of the governing elite, but it's interesting to note, and this is fascinatingly uh, similar to the uh, preceding Whig Party, is that until the election uh, of uh, William McKinley and certainly of Theodore Roosevelt uh, in 1904, um, all of the people representing the ostensibly, because the Democrats always put themselves against the uh, uh, or often put themselves against the, the Republicans and the Eastern establishment and uh, trying to represent the South and the West, almost all of them were war heroes. In other words, the people who were the, the, the elected executives uh, were not exactly the kind of refined, uh, well-educated, uh, high-minded uh, high types. Uh, wasps, and this is, uh, and this I think continued deep into uh, deep into the mid twentieth century. I remember uh, reading about the history of the founding of the state of Israel and how Harry Truman had to deal with all the wasps uh, in the State Department who really weren't were not big on the idea. Um, how exactly do they insinuate themselves uh, into 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 the Republican Party and maybe even partially into the Democratic Party uh, to say? You know what? Okay, we probably can't get elected, but you really need us, and we'll serve you well. Yeah. So you make a, a great point, which is that despite um, their claims of natural authority, um, the Wasps were, were not particularly good at winning election. And that's because even in the mid and late nineteenth century, when the population as a whole was majority white Protestant, um, only a minority either met this description we've been developing or were, were sympathetic to them. Um, and the Republican Party, um, uh, in particular, nominated a, a series of Civil War generals, of, of war heroes, um, beginning with um, Ulysses, Ulysses Grant um, in 18... Uh, 70, um, uh, excuse me, in 1868. Um, so one of the, the moments where I think you can see the WASP tendency emerging is in 1872, when a group of former Republicans, including some of the founders of, of the Republican Party, split from the Republican Party um, to oppose the renomination of Grant, whom they regarded as corrupt um, and without principle in, in all these ways we've been describing. Um, and organized themselves as what they called um, liberal Republicans. Um, they, they supported the nomination of the newspaper editor uh, Horace Greeley. And the liberal Republican platform of 1872 is, is a really interesting um, expression of what would become characteristic WASP priorities, which don't fit neatly into today's distinctions um, between right and left or liberal or progressive and, um, and conservative. Um, so they were for um, free trade, um, and this was part of their liberalism, liberalism in, in the classical um, sense. Um, but also, um, it was part of their suspicion of corruption, and they saw the tariff as a way that 
government could reward favored uh, enterprises and industries and punish those um, that were disfavored. They were critics uh, of immigration, uh, which again they saw as a source not only of cultural corruption but also political corruption because they thought, um, well, okay, you get these immigrants, they barely speak English, they don't know anything, it's easy for them to be manipulated by the party bosses. They were critics of Reconstruction um, in the South for much the same, uh, much the same reason. Um, they believed that what Reconstruction did was, in effect, create a group, a block of docile black voters who could be manipulated by the mainstream Republican Party to put uh, their people into office and therefore to provide jobs and benefits um, to their, uh, their supporters. And they were in favor of civil service reform as an antidote to these tendencies. In other words, they believe that government should be staffed by professional experts rather than by um, popularly elected officials or by those who were chosen by popularly elected officials, usually on the basis of their, of their party affiliation. And I emphasize that. This is all a long-winded way of getting back to your question, because that was the point of entry um, into political institutions for the WASPs. They had terrible trouble getting elected, um, and some did, including Theodore Roosevelt, although he was criticized by some members of, of his class and milieu from dirtying his hands in electoral politics and making, making too many compromises um, in order to become and remain president. But they believed correctly that they could exercise disproportionate influence in professional administrative bodies which would hire them because they had the right education and the right skills to run things, and in which they would enjoy protection from political pressure. So the, the, the rise of the WASPs in, in many ways is inextricable from the rise of the administrative state, in which power is shifted away from elected legislatures and away from patronage, jobs that are filled by the party leaders uh, with their own supporters, and toward professionalized experts who are protected against punishment um, or, or firing based on their political views. And those are the kinds of institutions that WASPs designed partly out of self-interest. I mean, again, um, they, they were trying to wield power and this was a way they thought they could be um, effective in doing so. Um, but also out of genuine principle and genuine belief that it was only in this way that you could get um, clean and competent government in a modern society faced with enormous changes and upheavals in demographics, in technology, um, in, in economics, and in culture. Fascinating. Um... You bring up an issue that 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 obviously doesn't fall into the the, the definition of, entirely fall into the definition of conservatism today, um, but from what you're describing, uh, and again, this calls back to the old Whigs. That you know, there's a reason they continued from there. 
is that it really sounds like sounded to me sounds to me like the wasps in addition to understandably criticizing uh, you know the excesses of mass democracy with uh, with machines and favors and handouts and demagogues it sounds like they have a distrust of democracy that can be almost kind of almost dangerous like almost like uh, Clemenceau uh, the famous uh, French Prime Minister during the First World War said that war is too important to be left to the generals. So it almost sounds like the WASP's ethos was um, democracy is too important to be left to the citizens. And did they not realize how possibly corrosive that was? Well, I think that like patrician reformers um, of, of many, many ages, um, they both sincerely believed that they were doing what was best for the people or at least for um for most um of the people and at the same time reliably acted in ways that reflected their own predispositions prejudices um and and interests and uh, you know if you if you if you look into um the 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 Works and the the sort of literature um, of the early wasps, you you see many of them trying to walk this tightrope um, between, I, I think, mostly a, a a fair, a genuine belief in democracy or the principle of of popular sovereignty, and their own belief in the authority uh, and virtues of their their class. Um, and of course, different figures lean in different directions. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, as I mentioned a moment ago, made his peace with, with mass democracy, in effect. Um, and rather than pursuing power through administrative means and sort of civil society good works, did run for office, did um, support his party even when he did not care for uh, all of its nominees um, or or adherents, and and did you know devote himself to a career in in practical democratic politics, whatever misgivings he may have expressed in in private. On the other hand, uh, there are those like uh, Roosevelt's uh, friend Henry Adams who could never reconcile themselves to democracy um, and who, after the optimism um, of, of the 1870s, when he and others had really believed that um, a sort of reformist patrician movement could get off the ground, whether through the liberal Republican faction or in some other form, then retreated into a really ugly kind of nativist and elitist cynicism um, that consigned democracy, America, and the very modern age um, to uh, collapse under the weight of its own corruption. And different figures, again, leaned in one or the other direction, but I don't think any of them were ever able to escape this this tension between their view of themselves as a class destined for leadership and their commitment, again, I think mostly genuine commitment, um, to the United States as a democratic republic. Speaking of tensions, um, at least in theory, 
uh, as you described their ethos, it was very, it was at least theoretically meritocratic. Uh, in theory, if a, if a, if an immigrant or a different kind of family uh, managed to get enough resources and have enough education to really prove themselves, they could perhaps uh, join this class. And yet, uh, at least when it comes to one group, uh, uh, the Jews, they were almost notorious about really not liking uh, Red Sea pedestrians. How exactly did they manage the tension on the one hand saying, we are a natural ruling class and of the entire American people? And on the other hand, very clearly, there were limits. There were points where maybe they couldn't exactly justify it, but they said, no, at the end of the day, uh, what was it? Uh, there, there was a spy movie where where uh, somebody who, uh, Joe Pesci says, we have churches and we have communities and so forth. And the Wasps guy says, we have the, we have the United States of America you're just visiting. Yeah, um, it's a great scene in The Good Shepherd, which unfortunately is not a, a, as good a movie as it deserves to be. It's it's about um, the foundation of, of the CIA, um, and there's there's great stuff there. It doesn't quite work as a film, um, but yeah, that 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 scene expresses uh, this this ethos. So Joe Pesci plays a gangster who's involved in um, machinations uh, connected to Cuba, and he asks Matt Damon, who plays this patrician CIA officer, um, uh, you know, what do you people have? He says, we we Italians, uh, we we have the church in our families. Uh, Blacks have their music, Jews have their tradition. What about you people? And they say, we, we have, and Damon says, we have the United States of America. The rest of you, um, the rest of you are just, are just visiting. Um, and it's a good scene to bear in mind um, because the prejudices of, um, of the Wasps were not limited to, um, to anti-Semitism. Um, as um, uh, one historian um, of American immigration um, points out, they they had real problems. I think more than we realize today, understanding um, Italian and other Southern European immigrants that was just not on their on their map, um, and they barely considered them um, human, let alone worthy of, of democratic citizenship. There's also a very tortured history of their relations with African Americans, beginning in um, the, the optimism of the anti-slavery and abolition movements and early Reconstruction, but very quickly curdling um, as Reconstruction and uh, black politics in the South doesn't take the, the form um, that the patrician reformers had, had expected it to. Um, but all of that said, they, they did seem to have a particular obsession with, um, with Jews. And there are partly sociological um, dimensions to this. So um, as you and your, your listeners know, historically, Jews have always been um, associated with, with capitalism, and in particular with finance capitalism, for many of the WASPs, and here again, Henry Adams is a good example, um, Jews became a sort of synecdoche for everything he thought was wrong with 
the modern economy, um, which was subversive of, um, of genuine merit, um, which was tumultuous, you know, constantly making and breaking um, new fortunes, and above all, which was corrupting, because you could, you could go out and make a lot of money in more or less dishonest ways, rather than building a solid reputation as, as a servant of your country. Um, and for Adams and for many other wasps and proto-wasps, Jews became sort of the symbol of that. But I think there's an even deeper element here, which is that the, the Puritan ancestors of many of the wasps had also been obsessed with, uh, with Jews, um, or at least with the biblical Israel, um, so much so that some of them really thought that they were a kind of modern successor. To, uh, to the biblical Hebrews, to the, the biblical chosen people. And on some level, and here I'm, I'm, I'm speculating, but I don't think I'm going too far beyond what the evidence would justify, um, they, they sort of felt that the Jews were, were rivals to them, that, that, that Jews somehow had um, in, in inverted or, or negative image form the same virtues that they were trying to cultivate. So they never really worried um, about blacks or Italians or Greeks taking over, um, but they really did think, and this is where these older cultural obsessions um, intersect with the anti-capitalist conspiracy thinking that was widespread in the late 19th century, that the Jews could somehow replace them, could, could supplant them as the true rulers of America and the true rulers of, of the modern world. And in some cases, um, that led only to fairly unpleasant words and ideas, but very little in the way of practical, uh, practical action. Um, in, in other cases, um, it led to various forms of more and less serious discrimination. Guess not much has changed. Um, so, with their contradictory uh, tendencies, with both their prejudices and their virtues, and their very sweeping, uh, very ambitious idea of remaking America, let's be honest, more or less in their own image, um, what were the wasps, broadly speaking, aiming to do when it came to uh, American uh, politics, or at least American administration, beyond just clean government. Like, where did they, what did, where do they want the direction of, say, the economy and the family to go? Uh, and what kind of uh, culture, uh, literature, uh, arts did they think uh, good to encourage among ordinary Americans? So that's that's a great a great question, and it's a hard one to answer um, because I'm not sure that they always knew the the answers the the answers. Um, there there was, as I, I've been describing, um, a sort of generalized vision of clean government and power exercised for the common good, but they didn't always get 
much beyond that. Um, and that may be one of the reasons, and perhaps we'll get to this um, in, in a few moments, that in the 20th century, um, and particularly in the 1920s and 1930s, the, the WASP enterprise starts to break down. Um, and on the one hand, um, sort of ossify, if not um, to, to decay um, into a more or less laissez-faire vision of, of capitalism um, that begins to resemble something we can recognize as, as conservatism. Um, but on the other hand, to drift to the left into socialism um, and often, often communism. And I think that was partly a response to changed circumstances, again, about 50 years um, after the, the formative period of, of this group, but also has something to do with the, with the ambiguity of, um, of its, its goals. As for the kind of culture and education that, that they wanted, um, they were partly in imitation um, of the British administrative class, which was forming um, around the same time, had sort of gotten off the ground a generation or two earlier, but was also a work in progress um, in the second half of the 19th century. They were instinctively classicists, um, and they they really believed that the classical republics of Greece and and Rome, um, and that in itself is an interesting um, uh, discussion. Their their ancestors had been more interested in Rome than in Greece. Um, the wasps of the late 19th century were more interested in, in Greece than, than in Rome. Um, they, they believed in the ideal of self-cultivation um, and of sort of a balanced character composed of excellence in all the various, um, various faculties. And that's part of the reason that, as you pointed out earlier, they weren't quite meritocratic, um, at least in the modern sense of of valuing academic excellence over other qualities. They, 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 they were committed to the ideal of the well-rounded, the well-rounded person who would, yes, you know, be, be reasonably uh, adept in um, academic studies, particularly classical studies, but was also an athlete who also um, respected um, the fine, the fine arts. Um, and only this kind of person, they thought, could withstand the pressures of modern life, which led at best to the exaggeration of one set of qualities over another, and at worst um, diminished, uh, diminished them all. Now, that aspiration um, was really the focus of, of elite education um, in the ancient uh, colleges, which at this point are beginning to become uh, modern universities, and also in um, the many schools that were revived or founded during this period. Um, uh, Groton um, in, uh, in Massachusetts is the, the most famous of these, and 
even though it was quite small, I, I think most perfectly represents um, the WASP ideal. When it came to mass education, um, and in particular uh, the education of immigrants, they, they promoted an ideal um, of 100% Americanism, of, of full assimilation. Um, and when they were in more generous moods, and you find a lot of this rhetoric in in Theodore Roosevelt, um, among others, they would say, well, you know, yes, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't even matter what your religion is. But if you come to the United States, you must become a citizen. And in becoming a citizen, you must not only um, cultivate um, the dispositions that are necessary for politics, you have to identify fully with America and with its culture, which they themselves associated um, with the culture of New England. So it's okay to be Italian, it's okay uh, to be black, it's even okay to be uh, a Jew or, or an Irishman, um, but you have to uh, read your, your Emerson and Thoreau, and you have to um, begin to understand uh, religion in an idiom related to liberal Protestantism. And if you do all of those things, then yes, it's, it's okay. Um, to You can be an American, but you have to remake yourselves in the model of what they thought an American should be rather than developing um, alternative, uh, alternative forms. Fascinating. Um, I want to latch on to that last point that you noted. Um, because they're called white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Um, but uh, as we all know, anybody who spends even a little bit of time uh, reading about what that meant, it, uh, there were enormous numbers of uh, denominations of uh, Protestantism even before the country was founded and certainly afterwards. Um, and I also kind of wonder, people who are that worldly, who were that established, who felt themselves operating more by, I guess, tradition and disposition than real conviction. Was their Protestantism really a, a deep theological uh, commitment at any level, uh, say up to uh, the idea, or was it just a more generalized idea of people believed to kind of like what happened in uh, in the 1950s when uh, Eisenhower says you got to believe in God I don't care who we, uh, I don't care what you call him uh, was it closer to that well I always I always hesitate um, to assess the sincerity of anyone's religious convictions um, and um, that's that's particularly true when as in this discussion you know we're talking about a group of people who had a range um, of of views. So all of those are are caveats um, that nothing I say should be taken as as definitive. Um, but I, I think there's there's reason to believe um, that WASP religion was much more about culture and institutions and aesthetics and moral aspiration um, than it was about genuine uh, genuine conviction. Um, and one of the reasons I think that is that 
Henry Adams, um, who is one of the great, if not the greatest, um, chroniclers of the wasps from, from the inside, wrote uh, really a very little-known um, novel about that called, uh, called Esther. Um, which is about, among other things, um, a young uh, Episcopalian priest um, in the 1880s who falls in love with a, an unsuitable woman. Not, none of that is um, particularly important, but what is important is that the book is an exploration of a phenomenon that Adams himself certainly experienced, he makes that clear, and that I think was, was shared by others of his milieu of being passionately in favor of religion in principle, and not just any religion, um, but a kind of um, uh, anglophiliac Protestantism um, that had a strong connection or orientation toward uh, toward the medieval. And indeed, some of the wasps went so far in that direction that they ceased to become wasps. They, they became they became Catholics. Um, and this is this is a counterpoint to the Christianity of their parents and grandparents, which had been um, much more uh, progressive in its view of, of, of history. But despite all of that, never quite being able to believe it. Um, so it's, it's in this period after the Civil War um, when um, the New England and Northern elites who earlier in American history um, had been members of a, a variety of denominations, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, um, some members of Dutch Reformed churches, and at least in um, uh, Boston and its environs, uh, often Unitarians, they're all drawn increasingly to the Episcopalian Church, um, which becomes the the flagship institution um, of uh, the the WASP class because it is. In itself, it is it is um, English, you know, Anglo-Saxon, um, but English and and Protestant, um, and becomes the focus of a lot of philanthropy and other institutional energy. What you don't find um, in this moment, I think, is a lot of um, theological inspiration, um, and that makes uh, the WASP Episcopalians and what would later be called the Protestant establishment vulnerable uh, later in the 19th century and early in the 20th century when it's challenged by the burgeoning fundamentalist movement, um, which, which says, in effect, um, this is all very nice. You have beautiful churches. You you sing beautiful beautiful hymns. You say nice things about God and Jesus, but you don't actually believe any of these things. It's merely um, a cultural affinity, um, and at worst, just a form um, of of virtue signaling. And in some ways, that split um, between uh, fundamentalist and modernist or more broadly sort of cultural Christianity um, still continues to, to define American politics.
That's a great segue. Uh, you speak about the challenges that they face uh, in the 19, uh, late 19th and 20th centuries after they've tried, they've worked hard, they're in the bureaucracy or they're in positions of important uh, leadership or in presidential cabinets. Um, but then it st all starts to change. A and what I'd like to understand is we know the end point that they're mostly gone or subsumed or their, their ideas have been assimilated by others. But I was wondering if you could give me perhaps a, a more detailed explanation of what what were the factors that led to this dominant state class, which did not r suddenly run out of money in the 1920s uh, or education in the 1950s? What led to the their losing influence and uh, hold on the American public and indeed even the American administrative state? So I think the the decline of of the wasps um is a result of a, bu a bunch of different factors um not all of which are themselves easily explained and and one of those which bears mention especially now that people are so interested in in demographics these days is that they sort of stopped having children um or at least uh didn't have a sufficient number of children um, to reproduce themselves, or at least to maintain their their share of the population relative to um, other groups. Now, of course, you don't need to be um, a majority or anything like a majority to be um, a state uh, a state class, as as you put it, which I think is a, a useful a useful term. But in in a fairly literal sense, in the twentieth century. Um, the wasps start dying out. Um, and this is a problem that they were well aware of and that obsessed them. Um, there are letters uh, exchanged um, between Theodore Roosevelt um, and his friend um, Owen Wister, who was a, a Philadelphia patrician who's, who's best known um, as a writer of, of westerns. He was one of the people who, who popularized the sort of familiar now familiar image of of the old west and they exchange these letters where, where they say you know isn't this isn't this terrible um you know giuseppe is having all of these these children um and avram is having all of these children but our our nice friends on um fifth avenue and beacon hill aren't aren't having any children we're going to be we're going to be swamped and part of the Immigration restrictionism, which was popular uh, among the wasps, was was driven by that that fear um, of being demographically overwhelmed. Um, but there were there were other challenges uh, challenges too. Um, and although you're right that it's not as if they ran out of money in the 1920s, they did face significant economic challenges in the 1930s. Um, so the, the, the crash of 1929 and the Great Depression don't do too much damage to the really huge fortunes of, of the period. Um, uh, the Rockefellers, the Whitney's, others, you know, these are still names that are familiar and they remain with us for, um, for a reason. Um, so if you had at that point um, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, you were probably fine. But the Depression does wipe out a sort of 
class of smaller uh, rentiers who are able to rely on, if not to live on entirely, at least the comfort um, of investment income. And that was what allowed a lot of the WASPs to pursue careers in public service for which they, they weren't paid all of that much money. If you have um, an inherited uh, income or through some other family source, you can afford to live in reasonable comfort and also work at a civil service job. That economic cushion uh, begins to be um, eliminated. And what had been um, a sort of patrician upper middle class, people who were not outrageously wealthy, um, but also didn't have to earn everything they, they spent, begins to disappear, and they begin to descend into the middle class, uh, and with that to lose the sense of esprit de corps and, and class privilege that they had once enjoyed. Um, and this is depicted by, um, by novelists of, of the period. Um, J.P. Marquand, um, who was a sort of peripheral wasp himself and wrote a number of best-selling uh, novels set in, in that world, is one example. Also, John Cheever um, has this for one of his his great themes. You know, um, often the, the metaphor is is quite simple. These descendants of greatness in in a decaying uh, house that they can no longer afford and that they have to sell so that they can buy tract homes in 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 Westchester. So there were um, economic challenges uh, to the continuation um, of this class. But I, I think that the biggest problem that they faced was really political um, and was posed by uh, Roosevelt, um, ironically himself, um, a member of great wasp families um, and regarded for that reason as something of a traitor to his class, um, but even more than, than Roosevelt um, by the Second World War. When the United States was forced to adopt um, as a, a semi-official philosophy um, a sort of liberal egalitarianism, which is still very familiar to us, that it doesn't matter where you, where you come from, it doesn't matter where, you're, where you're, your parents are, you are of equal value and have an equal uh, opportunity um, to, to rise. And that left very little space um, for the patrician reform instinct. Um, it, was, it was hard to square the idea of a stable, permanent governing class with commitments to equality among different ethnic and cultural and religious groups and to individual mobility um, according, to, um, according to talent. And this wasn't just a problem um, at the level of principle either. I mean, I think WASPs understood um, beginning in the Second War World War itself and into the Cold War, and you see some of this um, in The Good Shepherd and other pop culture 
products that deal with the 1950s and early 60s, that there just weren't enough of them to do all of the things the United States was called upon to do as global, as global hegemon. They needed to recruit more widely. They needed to find ways to open up to talent and to reward people who were good at doing stuff that seemed necessary to defeat the Nazis and Japanese and later to defeat um, the communists. And as a result of that, by the 1950s, the Protestant establishment is sort of on the back foot. And this is the, the moment at which uh, Digby Baltzell popularizes the term wasps, not as praise, but rather as criticism. And he says, look, here is this governing class that's no longer adequate to the challenges of our time. And what we wasps, again, he was a member of that mil milieu, what we wasps have to do, he says, is to, is to cease our efforts to maintain an exclusive caste, that is to say, a group in which membership is determined by, by birth, and instead become sort of school teachers to a meritocratic elite. We, we, will, we will show the children of, of the immigrants, we will show African Americans, we will show the world what it means to govern a democratic society and to pursue the common good selflessly. And when we've done that, Baltzell suggests, then the wasps can sort of disappear. Then, then they will have fulfilled their world historical, uh, world historical function. Um, and as the account I've, I've be given, been giving um, suggests, it's, it's at this point in the late 50s and early 60s that wasp politics becomes increasingly difficult to distinguish from progressive liberalism. Um, the the Wasps had founded the Republican Party, with with some exceptions, they had mostly stuck with it right through World War II. But in the 50s and even more um, in in the 60s, they gravitate toward the Democrats, um, especially under under Kennedy, who personally symbolized this fusion because he was himself of Irish immigrant descent. He was nominally uh, a Catholic, and yet he had developed this super wasp persona that was much more aesthetically waspy than the lives that most wasps actually actually lived. Um, and for people uh, like like Baltzell or like um, the historian of Puritan New England, Perry Miller, Kennedy really represented the the synthesis and his optimistic egalitarian liberalism was the the successor to the WASP reform enterprise of the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. Wow. That's quite the tale. Uh, it sounds, from what, how you describe it, that really, not just did America change, but the truth is, is that the WASPs prepared to themselves to be a governing class of an America that did exist for a while, but no longer existed, and the, the they really couldn't uh, do much about it. So to try and finish off, um, I'm not a big fan of asking uh, two direct questions about um, any specific current events when it comes to learning from history. I think uh, history is too complex for that. But I will. let me put it this way. The, the wasps are gone, but and America is... Interestingly enough, just like uh, during the 1870s and 1880s, 
deeply at odds with itself over what America is, what America should be, what Americans should be. Um, what positive lessons could we learn with obviously the appropriate changes for who is and who will be uh, the governing class uh, in this age, whether it be uh, for a Democratic Party or a Republican Party in the sense of, I have my ideals, but I would nevertheless try, like to try and avoid the mistakes the WASPs made. Well, let me try to answer the question just in a, in a slightly different way. And if it's not satisfactory, give me a hard time and I'll, I'll give you a, a different answer. Because I, I, I took your question to be something like, what, what, can, we, what can we learn from the wasps. Um, yes, we, we we can't recreate them or exactly what they did, but are are there lessons here? And I, I think the lesson um, is their extraordinary energy as institution builders outside of electoral politics, which, as I said, was was not entirely admirable or was not entirely due to admirable motives. If they could have won more elections. They would, have, they would have focused on, on winning elections, but because they couldn't, they had to seek other avenues for influence. But what, the, what they did was establish or reform or revive this extraordinary array of institutions outside government, including schools, churches, social service uh, institutions, universities, and, and more, um, which were, again, partly a way of promoting their own influence. They wanted to have an impact in the world and to promote certain, certain principles and virtues, um, but also genuinely enriched uh, American cultural, religious, um, and, and political, political life. Um, so that's, that's the lesson that I would hope that we can learn um, from the late 19th century, um, which, contrary to some accounts, um, is the real golden age of American civil society and civic association. And I, I think it's only through institutions outside government that can pursue their goals over years and decades and at this point centuries in, in some cases um, that we can hope to have some part of the reforming influence um, that the WASPs did. Uh, merely winning elections and passing laws is not going to do it, however important uh, that is in, um, in particular cases. Excellent lessons to go by. Professor Samuel Goldman, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure and I've learned a great deal. It's been a pleasure for me as well. It's always fun to talk about these things. <laughs>